The following message is from the 2019 IBCD Training Institute, Identity Crisis. Uh, my name is Deepak Reju, and this is the workshop on I am dating the wrong guy, or are you dating the right person? Let me pray as we get started. Lord, thank you for a chance for us to spend this time thinking together about our relationship with you and our relationship with others. We think about dating. Pray you to help us right now. We pray in your son's name. Amen. So I want you to imagine that you meet a guy and he's really interested in you and you go on a few dates and things go so well, you start officially dating. Now here's the rub. He's not a Christian. If you're a Christian, is it right to date a non-Christian? Uh, there's a lot of questions that surround that thought and possibility, and we want to talk about that today. So in, in the time together you see in that outline, there's three things I want to cover in our conversation. The first part is going to be turning to Christ, who I'm going to call, obviously, the right guy. Secondly, how to look and what to look for. And then third, bad situations, examples of who not to date. So first, uh, we want to think about turning to Christ. So many years ago, a Samaritan woman thought her day held just an ordinary trip to draw water from a village well. Instead, she had a life-changing encounter with Jesus himself. So if you got a Bible, why don't you turn with me to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. I'm going to read starting at verse 4. And he, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. A Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. And whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So what do we have going on in this text? Let's pause here and think a little bit about what we've read so far. Jesus stops at a town called Sychar near the plot of Jacob had given to his sons and, and near a well which Jacob himself had dug. We see the human side of Jesus. Uh, he is tired from the journey and it's the midday. So the midday heat is beating down and so he sits down. 
A Samaritan woman comes and draws water, and Jesus shows no hesitation in speaking to her. He asks her, you see there, verse 7, Will you give me a drink? Now, because of the Jewish cultural and religious restrictions, she is understandably surprised. But we see that Jesus doesn't care about social and religious taboos of his day. He's come to earth with a mission to save sinners no matter what the social cost. She responds, verse 9, How can you, a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? She's shocked. She is genuinely surprised. She can't fathom why a Jew would ask her for a drink. Now you see there John's parenthetical comment in verse 9, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. That reflects the cultural and theological animosities that existed between Jews and Samaritans. Christ is not bound by the worldly restrictions and prejudices. He's not bound at all by any of them. So you see there, he actually has no hesitation in speaking to this woman and engaging her at the well. Jesus answers by pointing to himself. If you knew who it is that asks you for a drink. You hear what he said. He was making reference to himself. If she knew who Jesus is, she would be asking him for living water. Verse 10, the eternal life that Christ provides through the Spirit. Now at this point, the woman does not get what Jesus is saying. She doesn't get the spiritual significance of the term living water. She thinks Jesus is talking about natural water. You see that verse 11 and 12, she asks how how he can draw from a hundred feet down where he had no bucket. Jacob dug this well and used materials to draw from the well. If Jesus can provide water without digging or using anything to draw water out, then surely he's greater than Jacob and Jacob's sons. So Jesus attempts to clear up the confusion. Look at there, verse 13 and 14. What does he say? Anyone who drinks natural water from this well will thirst again. But anyone who drinks from the water I will give will never be thirsty again. He's contrasting physical thirst with spiritual thirst. Physical thirst and spiritual thirst. Our physical thirst, verse 13, for water is never satisfied. No matter how much water the woman draws from the natural well, she will be thirsty again. But spiritual thirst, you see there, verse 14, is not the thirst for natural water but a thirst for God. If the woman would only turn to Jesus and receive his free gift of eternal life through his spirit, she would be satisfied forever. But she still doesn't get it. You see that there in verse 15. She thinks he's talking about physical water as indicated by her desire to no longer have to keep coming here to draw the water. She's attracted to this idea of never being thirsty again, so she asks for the water. She thinks she only needs physical water to satisfy her body's thirst. But what she really needs is Jesus. What she needs is a Savior. She needs to desire Him first because He alone can satisfy her forever. Natural water might seem to satisfy for a time, but she will only be thirsty again. And Jesus points to what's truly, truly satisfying. Not physical water, but himself. 
and for you. You know, what, what is there for you in the Samaritan woman's encounter with Jesus? You just take all of our thirsts, all of our desires, all of the things that we want in order to be satisfied. Take the thirst for a spouse or children, a thirst for love and companionship, a thirst for future security and acceptance, and recognize that securing a spouse might alleviate the thirst for a time, but you will be thirsty again. Nothing that this world has to offer, no matter how good the desire may seem, can satisfy the deepest need, which is your need for Christ. So stop setting your heart on the water that won't satisfy and turn your affections and desires to Christ to make Him first in your life. Would you make Christ preeminent in your life? Will you let Him be the chief of all desires? You know, here's an example. Are you approaching this whole area of dating and marriage on your terms? God, give me what I want, and then I'll be happy. Or on God's terms. You can have an amazing ally in God if you're willing to come to Him on His terms. You know, what does God want for you? First and foremost, He wants you to delight in His Son. So let's return to John's gospel and Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well. I'm going to read from verses 16 to 26. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands and the, old, and, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain or in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews." But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He is called Christ. When He comes, I, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. So Jesus shifts the subject from living water to the woman's husband. He knows her sin and gently exposes it. He tells her to go call her husband. You see that there in verse 16. And she tries to fend off any further probing with a curt response. I have no husband. Verse 17. Christ handles this sensitive subject graciously by commending her at first. You're right when you say you have no husband. Now think about this. Technically... She didn't have a husband right now because the former husbands had either divorced her or died. And the man she was with at this moment was not her husband. It was somebody she was living with and not married to. Jesus ends up by affirming her. Verse 18, what you have said, what you have just said is quite true. Now you got to ask as you're thinking about this text, 
Why the abrupt change? You know, we were talking about living water and physical water, and then there's this shift in the conversation. What's going on? Why suddenly talking about husbands? What, what does her husband have to do with living water? Well, you think about Jesus knows her heart. He knows her heart, and he knows our hearts. And he can see that she does not yet understand who she is, who he is. She doesn't see that her deepest and most significant needs are Christ and eternal life. So Jesus makes a second attempt to help her. That's what's going on in the conversation. He shifts it in order to help her yet again. He exposes her morally messed up life in order to help her grasp her, her deeper needs, not physical water and not a spouse, but a savior who can take away her sins. Now, the woman built her life around being with men. She satisfied her longings with five different men. And the final one, she didn't even take the time to marry. Are you looking for a man or woman to satisfy you in only the way Christ can? And Jesus displays his omnipotence by telling the woman about her life with five husbands without having to ask any questions. Now, you know, this is where it's just not fair in talking to Jesus. Because he knows everything about you even before you have the conversation with him. He's able to tell her all about her life even before she's opened up her mouth about her life. She's surprised. And so now she's sees that she is not dealing with a mere man. Look at what she says there in verse 19. I see that you are a prophet. She recognizes that Jesus has someone, is someone with some kind of special insight into her life. Now, the Samaritan woman changes the subject in order to distract from that really uncomfortable conversation about her own adultery. I mean, I would do that too. If Jesus is suddenly unearthing your sexual sin and talking about it openly in public right there, I would shift the conversation just like she did. And look at that in verse 18. She introduces a theological controversy about the proper place of worship. Verse 20. Should God's people worship in Jerusalem, as the Jews argued, or at Mount Gerizim, as the Samaritans held? Jesus uses her shift in the subject to direct the conversation once more to the question of who he is and what a person's response to him ought to be. Jesus argues that where one worships is much less significant than who is a true worshiper. With Jesus' death and resurrection looming, you see he says there, the hour is coming. Arguments about Jerusalem and Mount Gerizim just won't matter anymore. You see that in verse 21. True worship of the Father is to occur in spirit and in truth, verse 23 and 24. The woman seems to understand enough of what Jesus is saying to see some of the messianic implications. She responds, verse 25, I know that the Messiah called the Christ is coming. These theological questions will be answered by the Messiah who would explain everything to us when he comes. Little does she know that the Messiah is standing right in front of her. She makes that statement, and it, it, it's startling to think she's describing the Messiah that she knows about, but she doesn't even realize he's right there. If the woman had begun 
To suspect the truth, her comments about the Messiah in verse 25 may have been a confession of sorts in order to test what the Jewish stranger might actually say to her. Jesus needs no further invitation. He takes it abundant, he makes it abundantly clear that he is the Messiah of whom she is speaking of. Verse 26. The men she had devoted her life to were nothing. Natural water would never satisfy and but only leave her thirsty for more. So standing in front of her was God himself, the one who would change her life forever and leave her completely satisfied. If she would put her trust in Jesus, the Messiah, he would rescue her from her slavery to sin and give her eternal life with him. That is the gospel. That is the good news. Her life was transformed by an encounter with a Messiah at the well. And can you picture it? You know what I'm looking forward to? I'm looking forward to one day being in heaven and possibly actually meeting her. Being able to have the conversation about what was it like to have that conversation with Jesus at the well? Did you you finally realize who he was and how that would change your entire life? I'm looking forward to seeing her and having that conversation with her one day in glory. At least the question for all of us, is Jesus your Messiah? You know, more so than any kind of physical water or any kind of spouse or any kind of worship question, the first question we always have to answer is, is Jesus your Messiah? The best way to find a spouse is not to search for uh, the right man or woman with a great personality or good looks or common interests. As a Christian, the best way to date and marry is first to fall in love with the Savior. Trust in Christ and make him your priority. So part number two, how to look and what to look for, the pursuit of a godly man or woman. Okay, so now we got to ask, how do you decide who to marry? You see my points there. Number one, follow Christ with all your heart. Make him your deepest desire. So I just covered that. That was the whole thing I just explained from John chapter 4. That's what I established in part one. But number two, you see there, bathe your mind in scripture. Drown yourself in the word so that the Bible actually is your guide. Now here, here's the danger. Our culture has lots of things to say about dating. So you, you can actually walk out there and there will be every kind of proverbial wisdom under the sun and every friend or family member in your life who has advice for you on how to do this. Everybody has something to say about the subject. But if Christ is your greatest goal, then the word becomes your lens in even understanding how to actually find a spouse and what it looks like to pursue marriage. There's a big difference, though, between knowing facts of the Bible and thinking biblically about your life. If you meet someone, does the Bible actually tell you how to decide whether this is the person that's worthwhile to date or marry? Or do you just simply need to figure this out on your own? Well, I I think the Bible does have something to say, and I think it gives us a grid and a lens to think about, well, how do we pursue people in a dating relationship, and what are the choices we need to make in terms of marriage? And number three, you see there, seek counsel of others. Most people meet someone, then decide to 
go out with them if they like them. They spend some time together, maybe a few dates, and they start dating. And if it works out really well, they end up getting married. But you, you hear how I just described it. it it's often fundamentally an individualistic adventure. You, you, you pursue someone. You, you get into the relationship. You spend time together. And it's really just the two of you figuring this out. Maybe your family speaks in, friends give you advice, but really it's the two of you trying to pursue this together. And apart from the counsel of a few single friends who actually, you know, if you think about it, is not so good because they have just as much wisdom as you do on the subject. You're actually just figuring this out on your own. Individual Christianity is an anathema. It just shouldn't exist. There's no way in which we should try to figure things out on our own, let alone one of the most important choices, who I should date and marry. No, there should be no such thing. Dating, like everything else in the Christian life, should be done in a Christian community, in a local body of believers. Your pastor, the families in your local church should be deeply involved. Why is that? Because there's so many things to work through and evaluate as you date and consider getting married. So, don't you want wise, experienced, godly people to help you sort through it? You know, it's not just the big decision, should I get married to them? There's so many evaluations that you make along the way that you want godly wisdom to speak in. You want others to help you sort through it. Do you really want to sort through this on your own? Now, you know, if, if you're just not sure how to even pursue this, like you hear that and you think, well, that sounds good to me. But I don't know how to find that in my own local community, in my own local church. I don't know how to get that kind of wisdom from others in pursuit of it. Then ask me questions about that at the end. I'd welcome questions about that. Number four, you see there, the key ingredient is wisdom. This is the Bible's approach to decision-making, not some kind of mystical wait until God speaks to you. Like, hey, why don't you wait and you'll know for sure when a plane goes by and there's writing in the sky. That's how you'll know. Or just, just flip open to the Bible, and then the verse will say, you should go ahead and marry Jane. We're waiting for some kind of clear message from God, speaking up and letting us know. Actually, what do we see in the Bible? We see wisdom. Wisdom is the skill of living a godly life. Proverbs 23, 23. Buy truth and do not sell it. Buy wisdom instruction and understanding. And then number five, pray, pray. And then when you've prayed, pray again. Just keep praying. Ask the Father to give you wisdom that goes beyond your ability to discern both good and bad. You know, I, I think about my life and when I was dating, and I dated a good bit in my 20s, and um, I didn't really know what was a wise choice. And I'm actually surprised because the choice I made was a wonderful choice, but I was too stupid to realize how wonderful it was. <laughs> I'm very fortunate that I married a godly woman who has loved me, cared for me all these years. But I could, I could see then how little wisdom I really had and how much I was trying to do it on my own and how much I needed other people's help to really make a wise choice that I would live with for the rest of my life. And glory be to God, we're going to celebrate our 18th anniversary this October. And it's just gotten better and better as the years have passed. 
I've seen actually how good of a choice it is, more so now than even my first year. So that the, the, that next point, who, you know, now now if you date and want to get married, what should you be looking for in a spouse? How do you even know who to choose? What makes an for an excellent spouse and a fantastic marriage? What do the surveys actually tell us? You know, what what do you think are the top characteristics that Americans look for in a spouse? Take a guess. What are the top things that they say? Physical attraction. And then what'd you say? Good looks, physical attraction. What else? What'd you say? Rich. Security. Anything else? Funny. Good sense of humor. Nice. Not the mean person, the nice person. Intelligent. Yeah, good guesses. Here, here's, um, here's what they have in uh, descending importance and frequency. This is one of the studies that look for. What are people looking for? Number one, good personality. Number two, physically attractive. Number three, good sense of humor. Makes me laugh. And number four, fun-loving. Isn't that interesting? That was the top four. Uh, Fun-loving, eager and able to have a good time. What do you think about that? Is that a good list? Certainly nothing wrong with any of these things, but are these really the secret to a great marriage? Is this the secret to a great relationship? As you might guess, the Bible has a different idea of what makes for an excellent husband or wife. So here's my summary of what the Bible says, just in a, in a sentence. Look for a healthy, growing Christian. You might think that sounds too simple. Look for a healthy, growing Christian. Let me, let me explain what that is. What does that look like? Well, it starts with character. Proverbs 31.30 says, Charm is deceitful, but beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. And then Proverbs 12.4, A wife of noble character is her husband's crown, but a disgraceful wife is like decay to the bones. So, you know, Proverbs is written from a father to a son. So these Proverbs are speaking about the character of a woman he could marry. But obviously we can apply this both ways as we're thinking the character of a man or a woman who you're pursuing. That is to say, character matters. Character matters. And yet so often we don't really believe this. We pursue good looks and personality and a good sense of humor. And if there happens to be godliness, well, then that's a perk. But really, you want to marry a man or woman who fears the Lord. Full stop. Period. You know, think about the uh, text that we can go to on this. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 to chapter 7, verse 1. This is the unequally yoked text. This is the one that everybody always quotes in regards to, to dating and being careful about who you date. Really, this text is primarily about not forming partnerships with the ungodly. That, that's the headline of that text. It's literally, don't be... Uh, yoked with a non-Christian person. An implication of that is not dating uh, uh, a non-Christian person. That's not what the text is actually about, but an implication of it is. But the text, I think, is much clearer is 1 Corinthians 7.39. That's where Paul explicitly says, you should only marry in the Lord. 
So you've got to ask, is he or she clearly a believer? If there is any uncertainty in that answer, you've got to get counsel from others. You know, if a person says he or she is a Christian, and yet their life looks like non-Christians around you, more like the world than anything you see within the church, well, that too is problematic. What you don't want is someone who simply labels themselves as a Christian and yet lives like the world. It's not, you know, they call themselves a Christian, they go to church, they, they actually wash and actually take a shower at least once a day, and so therefore, let's go to the altar. That, that's not the criteria for actually getting married, is it? Or uh, he said the prayer when he was six. Well, now he's got a good sense of humor. Let's get married. <laughs> That's just not the criteria we want for following a believer, for getting married. We, we, you want someone who loves Christ, who is shown by their life, by how they live, that they trust in Christ. We, we want to believe and trust in Christ. And we want the people who are dating to believe and trust in Christ and show it in how they live their life. Theology bears out in real life. We, we can't just simply say we're a Christian. We have to show we have not only believed, but that those beliefs affect how we live. You know, questions we want to consider. Do they submit their life to God's word? Do they show the importance of a local church by making church a priority? Do they make decisions and does their life reflect values that show that God's kingdom matters more than their personal preferences or personal goals? Do they pray? Do they show a trust in the Lord in the hard moments? And do they approach life with a biblical worldview? What you are looking for is a profile of someone who lives and acts like a Christian. It's not just their words, but their profession that's demonstrated in how they live. Second thing you need to look for is humility. What you want is someone who is humble and teachable. Pride and arrogance gets in the way of everything and makes life harder. The picture of the proverbial fool is what? It's someone who is prideful and spurns correction. Proverbs 1.7, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 2, 1. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. Proverbs 15, 32. Whoever ignores instruction despises himself, but he who listens to reproof gains intelligence. The fool spurns correction and instruction. He isolates himself. And he focuses on his own desires and ignores what others want. And in doing that, the fool despises all sound judgment about whatever the issue is at hand. Proverbs 18, verses 1 and 2. Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. The humble husband or wife is open to hearing advice and receiving correction. The prideful one is not. And it's not just the Bible. You know, you listen to secular experts on this, and you're going to see that they, they recognize the value of humility within a marriage. So best-selling author and marriage researcher John Gottman says that husbands who refuse to be influenced by their wives, you know, they're prideful, end up divorced. 
He did a longitudinal study of 130 newlywed husbands, newlywed couples, and he found that with 80% accuracy, he could predict the couples who would end up no longer married. One of those warning signs was husbands who were not influenced and listening to their wives. So, what, what do we look for? The two things I pointed out. Christian character and humility. You look for Christian character and humility because that's what helps foster unity within marriage. Part number three, bad situations. Spouses you should avoid. I'm going to mention three. Situation number one, dating a non-Christian. So you meet a guy, he seems interesting. You talk and text and hang out some. He's not a Christian, but he's kind. He's fun-loving. And most importantly, he's shown a clear interest in you. Why would you take the time to do that? Well, none of the other guys at church, none of the other Christians at church are paying any attention to you. And this one non-Christian guy is not only paying attention to you, he's kind to you, and he wants to spend time with you. So you think, what's a few dates going to matter? And things go so well, you actually become a couple. A few dates turn into a significant investment in the relationship. Your Christian friends, your Christian parents, your pastor warn you, don't stick with this guy. He's clearly not a believer, so don't keep spending time with him. He's not a Christian, so you can't stay with him. So what do you start doing? You know, you start avoiding the conversations with them because you know how uncomfortable it is, because you know what they're going to say. And you start rationalizing the relationship. He's a, good he's a good guy. You know, he's kind to me. None of the other Christian guys at church are paying any attention to me. And you do that in order to stay together with him. Well, you may be actually what they call evangelating. You ever heard that term? You're combining evangelism with dating. You date with the hopes of eventually him becoming a Christian. That is a bad idea. It is a good desire to see someone trust in Christ. But mixing a dating relationship with evangelism can be confusing and it clouds the decision of a person considering the claims of Christianity. Now, how does a guy distinguish between his romantic feelings for you and his affections for Christ when he's exploring both at the same time. There is a real danger that these two things will be blurred in his own mind and heart. You can see, you can't see into his heart and know for sure if he chooses Christ for himself and not just so that he can actually be with you. So there's a real danger that he will think he is genuinely choosing Christianity when in fact, in the deepest recesses of his heart, he wants to be with you. And to, to be with you, he knows he has to become a Christian. Sadly, in many of these cases, months or years after they were married, the guy's pursuit of Christianity wanes. And eventually, he's no longer reading his Bible, he's no longer going to church, he doesn't really care to follow Jesus. Now, here's the warning. Typically what happens 
to a Christian who's closely tied to a non-Christian is that their interest in spiritual things degrades over the course of time because of the influence of that non-Christian on their life. He doesn't want to read the Bible. He doesn't want to go. He wants to go to movies or watch shows that have sex scenes in them, and it doesn't actually bother him. And he talks about everything but God. Maybe he actually outrightly contradicts your faith, or maybe he's more serene. He says, if you want to go, that's fine. Just don't preach the Bible to me. Well, what happens in marriage? Either you'll abandon your faith, the kind of degradation continues until your faith doesn't matter anymore, and you'll wake up one day saying, I don't know how I became so distant from God, and I'm not sure how I arrived here. Or you'll hold on to your faith, but you'll live a divided life. You'll, you'll treasure Christ, but he doesn't. So what's my answer to this? Well, ditch him. Don't ever date a non-Christian, let alone marry a non-Christian. Number two, the commitment phobic guy. A guy shows an interest in you, hangs out, you become good friends, you spend lots of time together, you text, you email, talk all the time, he clearly is interested in you. Weeks turns into months together, yet he's never defined what you're doing. You might think you're dating, but you just don't know for sure. And you know what? Your closest friends are actually beginning to wonder because they ask you, what are you doing? What's going on in the relationship? And you've got to honestly answer, I just don't know. So if you ask him to clarify, guess what happens? He freaks out. <laughs> or maybe he just declines to define what's going on in the relationship. He doesn't label it as dating, and he likes to use terms like, oh, we're just friends. Or, you know, we're just friends with benefits tied to it. In any direction you push him, what you're going to find, he's actually afraid of commitment and downright antagonistic to making commitments. What do we know about God? God is faithful and committed. God sets the example for us in faithfulness. He, he has shown his faithfulness in the past, and he shows his faithfulness to us now, and he will continue to show his faithfulness to us in the future. He demonstrated his faithfulness clearly by sending his son for us. He is the picture of what faithfulness and commitment looks like. So when we want to understand what commitment is and faithfulness is, we don't look to each other, we look to God. He helps us understand what true faithfulness is. You know what he did for us in us being sinners, he perseveres with us even when we're foolish. So just as God is faithful and committed, you want to be like God, be faithful and committed in all of your relationships. What happens too often? Well, a, a single woman perseveres in this relationship. After time, there's been so much relational and emotional investment into it, she just doesn't want to give up. She wants to see it materialize. You know, years ago, the first time I encountered this was a woman who had dated, in quotes, the guy for eight years. And year after year after year, she was hoping he would finally commit to getting married. And in the end, he never did. He never wanted to commit. And yet she held on year after year after year, 
hoping that one day it would materialize. Because she'd say to me, I've just invested too much to give it up now. Well, what do you do with this? You want to be clear about your expectations for dating and not vague and noncommittal. Ambiguity in dating leads to pain and hurt, and hearts are often led astray. So what's my answer to this? Same as the first one. Ditch him. If, if a guy is not going to be really clear about his commitments and his expectations and his place in that relationship early on in the dating relationship, then you should not bother with him. You should not wait around and wait for him to finally define it. Because you might find yourself in the position of that young woman who eight years later was still waiting for him to commit to something. You just don't want to be there. Number three, dating an angry woman. Well, you, you meet a woman and you have a great conversation. And so you, you spend more time with her and you're having great conversations. And so you go out on a few dates and you start dating regularly. And most of the time, things go well. Every once in a while, though, you see a streak of anger. You're talking with each other. And at one moment, you disagree. And the disagree gets a bit hard. And you see on your girlfriend's face, it gets a bit contorted. <laughs> and she looks like her head's about to burst. Maybe she actually screams at you. She's so angry. Or it's the other variety. It's the ice-cold anger where she avoids you and gives you the cold shoulder. Because these are isolated incidents, what do you do? Well, all the rest of the relationship is going so well. So these are just occasional incidents. So you, you, you rationalize it. Things are good. I don't think this matters all that much. You have concerns, but they're not big enough to actually end the relationship because so many other things are going well in the relationship. Here's my warning to you. Anger ruins a marriage. Anger absolutely ruins a marriage. Anger motivates others by fear and not love. Some of you grew up in homes where you can testify having watched Angry parents or angry siblings just ruin the atmosphere and the, the quality of the family life in your home. So you, you know this very well. You know it personally from your experience, how anger can ruin a marriage and a home life. Well, there's a big difference between a person who struggles with anger, is actively fighting it, is repentant, and someone who gives himself over to the anger and shows no restraint. The former is in the word, and getting accountability, and in community, and growing to know how to keep the anger in check, and the latter just lets loose and shows no self-restraint and makes you an enemy in every fight. They are the kind of person who you fear is going to get angry. And that kind of fear, if you have it in your relationship, is a bad fear for the relationship. It's a bad thing to have. The Bible warns us, actually, make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man, lest you learn from his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. That's Proverbs 22, verses 24 and 25. Unlike someone who occasionally struggles with anger, this is a warning about someone who is controlled by anger. You see those words, given to anger. The principle from this, these two verses are simple. 
If you tie yourself to an angry man or woman, you yourself will be, become angry. You'll learn the angry habits and get yourself entanger, entangled in his or her rage. You just don't want that. You know, you, you might find yourself to be a peaceful person, and yet you find out after you marry the angry person, you get entangled in the anger such that you become an angry person yourself. And you can't understand how you even got, you got there. Do you want to honestly deal with your life? Well, then don't marry that angry person. Don't rationalize these issues away. Take seriously any, any show of anger. And, and don't pursue that person if they're not showing themselves to fight the anger and be repentant in church and in the Word. You know, there are a lot of more examples that I could offer you. You know, the control freak, the passive lazy person, the brand new convert, the pr promiscuous guy or gal. All of those are examples and many more of the kind of person that you should not marry. But regardless, the point remains the same. If you make your greatest desire Christ, it'll affect who you date and one day who you'll marry. So turn to Christ, you know, love him and give your life to him. So that's the main things I wanted to say in terms of thinking about dating relationships and who to date and marry. And we have a little bit of time, so if you have a few questions, uh, uh, we have five or 10 minutes for questions. So when, when I uh, when call on you, if you just tell me your name, that would help. So yes, Julie. Yeah. The main thing is God, of course. Um, but would you say that, biblically speaking, if someone's called to do something, let's say called to be a missionary, um, versus called to be a you know father or something like that, which of you should take precedence? I guess the job that you believe that God has assigned you to do, and then your family life, which of these is, I guess should be second to, to God in that matter? Yeah. So you're asking in terms of different cultures have different priorities set out. And when you say which one, which which priority you're saying is right for all Christians. Yeah. Yeah, and that's that's a great question. So here here's what I would say. Um, and uh, the, uh, people, if you think about how they often order their priorities, you'll see they'll say God, family, work, and then everything else is what you typically see. Um, and so, you know, there, there's a sense in which that is absolutely true because we see that's what Scripture reflects. In terms of after, after God, your first priority should be your wife, your family, those who you're supposed to care for. Um, and then your work and your calling. What, what you often hear, so let's take the example that you gave terms of missions and marriage. Because I've seen this tension a lot as I've counseled missionaries. What you'll hear often in the mission field is this mantra, uh, your mission and your calling matters more than your marriage. You, you'll hear that, that the calling matters the most. And I just don't see that in the Bible. I don't see how you prioritize uh, that over your marriage. So I, I, you know, I've dealt with a lot of, say, single women who are overseas who want to get married. 
And they wrestled with this question of, do I stay or can I come back, marry someone and not head back to the mission field? And they feel guilty. They feel immensely guilty for abandoning the calling. And I'm not surprised because the mantra they keep hearing is, you're a failure if you abandon the calling. Well, you know, <laughs> a couple of things. First, first you've got to think about the term calling. You know, I, I believe what, we're, what we often do is we throw it around recklessly. And a calling is not just an internal constraining desire. You know, this subjective feeling I have with what God's telling me to do. It's also an external affirmation by God's people. And you've got to combine both in understanding that. So, you know, if, 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 if I feel called to the mission field and yet everyone else in my life who's wise and godly is telling me something else, you know, I can't just ignore all those people <laughs> and think somehow the subjective calling trumps that. Well, we'll go back to that specific example. You know, I am not going to let a single woman who's on the field who actually wants to go back and see if she would get married feel guilty as if she's a second-class Christian. Especially if she's not clear if she should be on the field but thinks it's a good thing and knows also she has a good desire for marriage. So, you know, the priorities actually work out where maybe she desires the calling and is willing to take the risk of potentially not getting married. And that's fine for her to pursue that. But maybe she realizes that actually where she's at, she's likely to never get married and she wants to head back to the States, go back to her own local church and spend some time seeing if she could get married and maybe one day head out again. I think that's fine. I think she's not in sin for making that choice. Think of the pastoral ministry. You know, I was told as I entered into pastoral ministry, okay, God, family, church. But the, my mentor said to me, you know, in real, reality, there are times in which you're actually going to have to put the church ahead of your family, especially in a place of a crisis. You know, if, if someone just died in a tragic car accident, I'm not going to be at the dinner table. I'm actually going to be beside that family in the hospital. Uh, and it's just true in reality in how the pastoral ministry works. But there are times like in our family's case where my wife had a major surgery because there were significant health issues two years ago. And I took a month away from work in order to focus on my family. And the church had to wait as I had to make sure my family did well. Yeah, so it's not so simple in just simply saying God, family, church. Though that's generally what we want to pursue. Um, so you, I appreciate what Jeremy said this morning in terms of identity. It's actually complex as we sort through it. We see general priorities in scripture, but as you descend into the specifics, then you've got to navigate people's hearts and the different things that they want. So you know what? We had a missionary come off the field, and for a couple of years, he not only did additional studies, he said, honestly, I want to get married before I head back to the field. Well, he just got married. <laughs> he married a godly woman, and they're planning their lives to head back to the field. I think that was fine for him to do. A couple of years before that, I had a young woman who was on the field, and she came back for her sabbatical. And everybody else said to her, you know, got to get ready to come back. You know, you need to be focused on coming back. You're doing good work on the field. She met a godly guy on her sabbatical. She never expected it. She'd actually given up on getting married. And she felt guilty because he wasn't going to be a missionary. I had to help her realize she doesn't have to have any guilt. <laughs> if she desires marriage and she sees this is a godly man to lead her, 
then her calling is now to commit herself to him and follow him where the Lord would take them. She doesn't have to feel guilty about that. So, I don't know if that, that's a long-winded way to answer your question. But I just tried to, I tried to not be simplistic, but kind of balanced with different examples, ways you can think about that. Another question, tell me your name. My name's Travis, I'm on my truth. Um, our daughter Rebecca is a, a very, very strong, uh, dominant personality, and she uh, has really tried to, to be faithful to, uh, to, to wait and to be cautious about being you know, overly grasping or, or pursuing of, of dating relationships, but I've found that the community of men that we live in, uh, at least at her age, are incredibly passive. Hmm. Um, I mean, I had to build my son-in-law. I really went and I discipled him from 14 till he married my daughter, my oldest daughter. I mean, I found that our, in our community, there just wasn't a, uh, there isn't a lot of men that are able to step forward and pursue and in a godly way. And uh, she's waiting right now. She's being very gentle in a the interest that she had in the church, and the guy is an older guy. He's established. He's got a good career. He loves the Lord. He's all the things that you just laid out are very clear, but not not proactively in a pursuing way. You know, showing any signs of pursuit at all. And she's struggling. I think I, as a dad, I'm struggling with, mm. and a pastor, I'm struggling with. Um, is it appropriate to come alongside the guy and say, "Hey, man"? You know, yay or nay. I mean, you know, you have a lot of time. You're talking. You're you spent weeks talking to her. The, the signals are kind of mixed. There's not real clarity. There's not really, you know, pursuit. And yet, my daughter is being very respectful and just kind of, you know, just waiting. And um, how, how do you deal with that? Yeah, it's a great question. Well, first, I love your phrase. I had to build my son-in-law. <laughs> like literally, find him, disciple him, raise him up, and say, "Ready, meet one of my daughters." <laughs> <laughs> if, if only more godly men would actually take the time to invest in younger men, help raise them up to help them understand what they need to do. You know, our congregation is, you know, we have a thousand people and half our congregation single. So I mentioned this yesterday. We, we're, we're often doing the same work of investing in guys and helping them not just to study their Bibles, but learn, this is wisdom, how to apply it to specifics, including dating and marriage and career. How to not do this all day? Yeah, how to not do that all day, stare at your phones. Um, a couple of things I would say. It, it, uh, one of the things that I wrote in the, in the back of She's Got the Wrong Guy is a chapter on waiting well. And just the, one of the hardest things to do as a single woman is learn why she needs to wait well and how it looks like to wait well on the Lord. Well, that's just a good thing to consider, like what does scripture say to us in terms of posture of waiting, since waiting is a basic posture of the Christian life, not just for single people. On, on the other side of that, though, yeah, I mean, I, 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 what I think we often do as a church is we leave singles to themselves to figure this out, which is why I said earlier, dating in community is important. And, and that means for us as a church, taking active involvement in regards to single men and single women. So we want them in our homes, not so that we just teach them the Bible, we teach them about life. So we want them in our homes because we want them to understand what it looks like to pursue someone, not just seeing our example, but to hear the advice and godly counsel of older men and women who will guide them into some of the very specific decisions. So my nickname in our congregation is D-Harmony. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm known as the pactor, pastor who will be actively involved in these affairs. <laughs> you know what, you know, in Jewish communities they call them yentas. <laughs> I have no shyness in actually going to a guy and saying you need to consider so and so. And explain to him why he needs to consider pursuing her and what her godly characteristics are. Or helping a young lady meet a guy, you know, and having them both over to dinner at our place. Being just very deliberate about it, because it can be very hard. And what I don't want is for single people to be flailing out there on their own and feel like nobody in church is helping them. You know, nobody in church is instructing them on what dating looks like or modeling it for them or speaking in about it, let alone taking an active involvement in that. Because dating in this culture right now is like guerrilla warfare. <laughs> it is just, it can be really hard and messy. So you want to be alongside of them. But you know, this gets into a whole philosophy of what you're describing of just uh, having the priority of discipling, actively discipling others will naturally lead to involvement in their lives in these areas. Now, you don't have to be a matchmaker, but if you're deliberately discipling men and women, it will naturally lead to these areas as they're sorting through life choices. And that allows you to get deeply involved. So I'm delighted, you know, one of the funner parts of my week is when couples come in, or a single man or a single woman come in, and what they wanna do is they just wanna sort through Actually, how do I live as a Christian in a godly way and pursuing a godly spouse? What a great way to spend an hour talking to someone, helping them sort through those things in a godly way. Yes? Can I give a testimony? Yeah, please. Um, I dated a guy for eight years, and I became a Christian in that time. And so I dealt with, um, is he really a Christian? Because he would go to church with me and stuff. And he never asked me to marry him, even though I wanted him to. And uh, eventually, I broke up with him, and I uh, was hurt for you know three years or so trying to figure this out. I went to Moody Bible Institute in Chicago and became involved in um, going to Israel. And I went to Israel, lived there for three years. And the issue is, maybe you want to get your your daughter involved in meeting the right guy and, and grooming the right guy, but I went to Israel in ministry to serve God. I wanted to, to tell people, Jewish people, about Christ, their Messiah. So as I was there, um, my husband, who we've been married for 45 years, mm. um, he also went to Moody Bible Institute, and the, the same professor said, look up Glenna in um, Israel, she'll tell you where the Christians are. In the meantime, God put it on my heart that I needed a husband because I was in a culture where my best friend in Israel looked lesbian. And my roommate in Israel, who was Israeli, was telling me that people were gossiping, uh, that I was a lesbian. So I asked God for a husband. And um, I have to say, he gave me the hormones <laughs> because I really wanted a husband. Mm. And I was 29 years old and had had 10 years of independence. And uh, so my husband was directed to come and see me by this matchmaker. Mm -hmm. And we were engaged after meeting each other. For, for, we were engaged in two months and married in seven months. Mm. And married 45 years now. Yes. Mm. But I do have to say that in the meantime, in Israel there aren't very many Christian men. 
and uh, everybody wanted to try to fix me up with somebody. And actually, actually, there was a Hebrew Christian man that was in business here in the States, heard about me, sold his business, and wanted to come and meet me. I refused to meet him. And then once uh, we were engaged, we were in a group of people. And there were, all of a sudden, there were like three or four Christian guys, single guys. And my husband, now, he wanted to announce our engagement. And I thought, wow, I'm going to marry this guy, mm. you know. And so it was a, a shock for me. I had to say, yes, I'm committed to this guy mm. with all these other. And then the guy that came to Israel, I met him the day I left Israel to get married. Mm. So you wow. can't really direct God to bring you to the right person. And our, our pastor used us as the example. Get in ministry if you really are wanting to meet the right person. Get in ministry and let God do his work. Mm. Okay? Mm. That's our testimony. Good. Thank you. Well, let, let me pray. Our time's up. Lord, thank you for a chance for us to think together about who Jesus is and who we are to marry. And pray we would, each of us in this room, make Christ our priority. We pray it in your son's name. Amen. Copyright 2019, IBCD. All rights reserved. More free resources are available at ibcd.org.